0: Please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. This morning, we will be wrapping up our four-week series, which has been extended to five weeks due to our cancellation. But we're wrapping up our four-week series. We've been looking at the Lord's Prayer. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 15. Next week, um, I'll be preaching a sermon that no doubt the Lord will give to me, um, but we will not be in the Lord's Prayer. The following week we will be in the book of Esther, which I am very excited about. Last week um, in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Remember, it wasn't that long ago. Jesus taught us to seek God's provision for all our daily needs. Be it food, be it water, be it clothing. I don't know about you. I really sought the Lord this week for heat during the polar vortex, right? The infamous polar vortex. It was brutally cold and multiple times throughout the morning would just call upon the Lord, keep the heat on, Lord. Did you do that? I mentioned last week, isn't it odd, verse 11, that Jesus doesn't teach us to thank God for these provisions, but to ask God for these provisions. Now, of course, if we were to do you know, a, a biblical survey, there are plenty of texts that tell us to thank God for these things. We are to be thankful for these things. But we must understand from verse 11, God wants us to ask him for these things. He wants us to seek his provision, because when we seek his provision we are acknowledging something of critical importance. Do we remember? We are acknowledging that we have a need that only He can truly supply. And the reason why this is critical is because neediness, I know some of us don't like that word, but neediness is the only requirement for entry into the kingdom of heaven. Yours and my salvation... Remember from the series in Galatians we, we did a few months ago? Yours and my salvation does not ride on our church attendance. You should be here. Scripture tells, scripture tells us to. But it does not ride. Our salvation does not ride on, per se, a church attendance or a generous tithing record or the number of Bible verses we've memorized. Our, our salvation does not ride on any works. The only thing. That permits us to enter into the presence of God, enter the kingdom of heaven, is acknowledging that we don't deserve to be let in. Because we've all fallen short of God's righteous standard, Scripture makes that clear. We have no boast. We have no argument that we can bring to God. We have no claim. The only thing, we must see this, the only thing that we have is need. Need for mercy. And the great news that we sing about every week, the great news that we gather around every week is that Jesus came to give us exactly what we need. He came to save those who know they need him. He makes clear in the Gospels, he cannot save those who are needless any more than a doctor can heal someone who does not admit they're sick. And this is where it gets really sobering. This is where it got sobering last week for me. Maybe it did for you because as educated 21st century Americans, many of us, if not most of us, have made it our personal mission to be independent, self-reliant, self-sustaining members of society. Our whole goal in life has been to achieve a state of needlessness to avoid having to depend on anyone (coughs) but ourselves. And this makes praying verse 11, the text that we're not even looking at verse 11 this morning, but we are right now. This makes looking at verse 11, this makes praying verse 11 nearly impossible for most of us. In fact, you might say it would be easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for most of us to actually pray verse 11. If we don't learn to depend on God for our simple needs, how will we ever depend on Him for our greatest need, which, newsflash, is not food? What good is food if we remain alienated from God and under condemnation of our sin? What good are all of the possessions of this life if our soul is lost in the next This is the logic of Christ. And his point is, much more than the bread of the day, you and I need the bread of God. We need Jesus. Our greatest need is to be brought back into relationship with God. And because our greatest need is to be brought back into relationship with God, the most important thing any of us can do today is to seek his forgiveness. Repentance is how we are restored back to God. Follow along as I read this morning's passage and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Jesus then stops teaching the prayer and he turns to his disciples who are surrounded around him on the mount and he says this in 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we always want to acknowledge that this is your word. In our reading of it, we have just heard you speak. So with all of the reverence we would give, if you were in the room saying these words yourself, let us give you now. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would spit out the bones of whatever it is of Chris that sees its way into this sermon. And that they would cherish and feast on the words of God. I pray that all of us would be changed. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, and, and really, really, my 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 thesis for this morning is that yours and my greatest need is to be brought back into relationship with God, which means the most important thing that any of us can do today is to seek His forgiveness through repentance. That is essentially what Jesus is showing us in today's passage. And I'm going to divide my thoughts here in a minute into two points. My first point, if you're a note-taker, is essentially what I just said in short. Our greatest need is forgiveness, which is only received through repentance. That's point number one. I'll uh, reiterate it when we come to it. Because then when we have truly repented, when we have been brought back into right standing and relationship with God, one of the surest signs that we have received forgiveness will be our willingness to extend forgiveness to others. Point number two. One of the greatest signs, if not the greatest sign, I'll add that caveat, greatest sign that we have received forgiveness is our willingness to forgive. And to kind of help us in our train of thinking, think of it like CPR. I don't even know what that stands for, but it's something resuscitation. So, Corey, you'll have to help us after the, the gathering. The greatest proof of Of your CPR training is not the certificate that you carry in your pocket. It's when you put it into use and save someone's life. All right. So before we dive in officially to point one, our greatest need being forgiveness, which is only received through repentance, let me set the stage for just a moment, Jesus leads into diagnosing our greatest need as human beings by teaching us to pray in the first half of verse 12, forgive us our debts. Now that, unless you came from Chase Bank, you know, earlier, well not today, it's Sunday, but yesterday, that word is something that we, you know, we don't, let me just put it this way. Debts are sins. Debts are sins that we have committed against God. And the biblical understanding of sin goes something like this, okay? Because God created us, we are His. We belong to Him. We are accountable to Him. He is our ultimate authority. And He has expressed in no uncertain terms how He wants us to live and behave in this world. And He has expressed in no uncertain terms, how he wants us to live and behave, he has expressed these things in his word, the Bible. So, when we do what the Bible tells us not to do, it is disobedience to God. It is sin. Conversely, when we don't do what the Bible tells us to do, that too is disobedience to God. It is Sin. Sin puts us in debt to God. It puts a, it drives a wedge between us and Him, which is the really bad news here because life is in Him. He is the fountain of life, the source of life. To be separated from Him is to be severed from true life what's worse is that our our debt yours and mine is so big that we could we could never pay it pay it off just think for a moment the number of times if you possibly can think for a moment the number of times in your life that you have been dishonest to someone think about the number of times you've had a lustful thought Entertained a a lustful scenario in your mind. Think about the number of times that you have gossiped about somebody Slandered their image. Think about the number of times you've coveted someone else's belongings How about this one? Think about the number of times that you have loved anyone or anything more than God we could never pay off the debt we have accrued. And by all accounts, when we're able to turn off the TV and all the white noise and read what the Word actually says about God and about us, about His holiness and about our fallenness, by all accounts, we come to the conclusion that we deserve to die in separation from God. This is the weightiness of our sin and he would be perfectly justified in letting each one of us die in separation but there is good news the good news that we call the gospel which is actually great news is that God was unwilling to let all of humanity die in separation from him hallelujah hallelujah And so he sent God the Son, Jesus Christ in earth in order to pay off the debt of those who would be saved, of those who would come to be his people by faith. Now, Jesus who came, this God man is not only fully God, when he came to earth, Jesus put on full humanity as well. Fully God, fully man. He had to be fully man in order to be a fitting representative for his people. And then he took upon himself every single last sin of every one of his people, every sin that we would commit, and he became, as a sinner, as if he himself had committed all of our murder. All of our greed and gossip and gluttony. He became, he became all of it. The most despicable man to ever walk the planet. He was vile. So much so that God the Father, we sang, metaphorical if you will, or turning, turned his face away. Separated himself from Jesus. And in our place as our substitute, Jesus became separated from God the Father. He paid off our debt. He offered his life as a sacrifice on the cross. What's more, as if we keep reading what we celebrate Easter Sunday, he raised to life three days later. Not even death has authority over God. God holds authority over all including the keys of death, and then having ascended back to the throne of heaven, Jesus now invites us back into relationship with God and into everlasting life with him. Glory. And as Jesus eludes in verse 12, entering into a restored relationship with God is as simple as, as acknowledging our sin before God in repentance. We simply acknowledge that our sin has rightly separated us from God. That we do not deserve to draw near to Him. We are in need. When we observe, we, we, we acknowledge that Jesus has mercifully opened the way back to God through faith and repentance. Our process of reentry into the kingdom is not complex. It is, it is difficult. We love our sin. But it is not complex. Theologian Wayne Grudem defines repentance like this. And I'll read it slowly if you'd like to write it down. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. A renouncing of it. And a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. I'll say it again. This is repentance. I bet it's broader than most of us thought when we came in here. It is heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere, listen to this word, commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Now remember, repentance, or excuse me, forgiveness is our greatest need. Forgiveness is our greatest need. If we've not connected that logic, what else could we, if you are a Bible believing person, or even if you're a skeptic right now, according to the Christian worldview, the truth that we hold up as authoritative, what need could you possibly have that surpasses having a right and healed and restored relationship with the one who holds all things. This morning's passage in in this morning's passage Jesus shows again remember he's you know he's he's on the side of the mount, right? There's, Tall grass, rocks, he's seated, rabbis would have been seated when they when they teach, his his disciples would have been seated all around him. There would have been crowds off in the distance. Think about you know livestock and, and children running around, right? This morning he's he's showing his disciples on that the side of that mount, that in its simplest form, he's talking about repentance in these parts of The Lord's Prayer, repentance in its simplest form, is a two-step process. That's what we learn in our passage this morning. First, we acknowledge and confess our sin to God, which is what we see in the beginning of verse 12. And then we turn away from our sin and back toward God which is really the crux of verse 13. We don't enter back into that sin when we've repented. We turn. It's a change of mind and heart and direction. I was once falling in sin. I have now repented. Right? So under the heading of point one, Number one, our greatest need is forgiveness, which is only received through repentance. Let's take just a a, a bit of a closer look at this two-step process of repentance that we see in our passage. The first step is to acknowledge and confess our sin. We have to acknowledge and confess that we are sinners in desperate need of God's mercy. Now, this may seem obvious, Probably to all of us, but... And I'm always knocking on 21st century Americanized Christianity, but I I can't help it. It's such a big target in 21st century Americanized Christianity. This has been made increasingly difficult, this first step of acknowledging and confessing that we're sinners in need of a Savior. Let me explain what I mean. So, surrounding Jesus on the mount would have been primarily Jews... Now, these Jews would have grown up under the Mosaic law, all 613 laws. Many of them would have memorized the first five books of the Bible by their teen years, having the law literally written on their heads. Not only did they have the law under the Mosaic law, these these Jews would have had the sacrificial system all growing up. They would have seen the costliness of sin. The sacrifice of the lamb. They, they also had the day of atonement. The whole, the whole feast, the whole thing showing the intensity of our sin. Point, the point being, they were constantly, constantly, constantly reminded of their sin and of their need for God's mercy. And therefore, when Jesus teaches them verse 12, they would have been more readily open to the idea of acknowledging and confessing sin, it would have been like, well, of course. We all struggle to see our sin, but there's something about the Jews and their upbringing and the constant state of it being in their mind. I I think there was an openness to, to, to more readily acknowledge many of them, yes, I am a sinner. I see the symbols of it. I have the word written on my mind but in today but today but today in America this this is not the case for us look i may have 5 chapters of scripture memorized not 5 books biblical literacy is at a staggeringly low level in our country right now and with it we have a very unorthodox theology of sin the local or excuse me the the social media driven culture that pervades all around us, has enabled us to surround ourselves only with people who affirm us with likes and favorites and retweets. People who online, if they don't endorse our way of living, our right to do and express ourselves however we want, we can simply unfollow them. We block out anyone and everyone who, who speaks a contrary narrative to the one we want to believe. Our churches today, many of them barely use the word sin anymore because they want people to come and to tithe. And the word sin makes us feel icky about ourselves. Our Christian radio stations shoot me. How much more positive and encouraging can we get? I did, I mean, really, I, I'm, I'm not trying to drag every, all this through the mind. Look, I did a couple of years of touring. I, I had some albums out there. I had a discussion with a radio rep about getting one of my songs on the radio. And the response was, it was too offensive because I talked about sin. On Christian radio in Columbus, Ohio. Our greatest threat to a restored relationship with God isn't the hard-fought second step of repentance. It's not the warring against our sin, but acknowledging our sin to begin with. And if you don't believe that we each of us have an issue acknowledging our sin, let me ask you, I ask myself this too, I am not holier than thou, let me ask you a fair question. When was the last time that you personally acknowledged sin before God in prayer? When was the last time that you made the space The quiet time, you found a place, you quieted your heart, and you brought a sin before the Lord. You named it, you called it what it was, and then you asked for specific forgiveness for that sin. When was the last time that you did that? Can you count in the last week on one hand how many times that's happened? What about the last month? What about the last year? Could you count more than one hand? This was sobering to me. We think that the world has a low view of sin. Jesus, I do. For so many of us in the church today, we are more in tune... We're more in tune with the reality TV shows and People Magazine than we are the Word. And we are hard pressed to feel the need to even repent. Because, in comparison to all the people we're watching on TV, in comparison to the heinous crimes against humanity that are being voted on right now in New York and Virginia. In comparison to those things, we think ourselves good people. Why do I need to repent? Look at the person on reality TV. I am nothing like that. It's because we aren't, our faces aren't, in God's perfect word, looking at the plumb line of Christ himself. I wonder how many of us, when Jesus returns... We'll look at Jesus in the eyes and we'll plead with him. Let me come into your kingdom. Look at all of the things that I did for you. I attended church most weeks. I put money in the box. I shoveled my neighbor's driveway. We'll come up with a long list of things that we've done And God, let it not be that Jesus would look back at one of us and say, I am sorry. I don't know you. You have never come to me to acknowledge the mountain of sin that separates you and I. You've done a lot of other things on the other side of that mountain. It would be akin to a to a to a, a husband or a wife who you know who cheated on a wife who cheated on her husband who, who does nice things for him. I shined your tools. I changed I had the oil change in your car, I bought you some chocolate or whatever it is, but she never acknowledges her adultery to him. It would be like that. I just God help us to feel the weight of this passage. That Jesus is pleading with us, with the church, confess your sins to God. Acknowledge your sin, like David did in Psalm 51, that all sin, man, we hurt other people. I hurt my wife all the time in my stupid sin, but I have to recognize, as King David did, that all of my sin ultimately is against him and him alone. I belong to him I am accountable to him. The woman I have hurt, my wife, she also belongs to him. I have scarred his property. Do we see how sin has to go back to the one that we've offended? We're to confess our sins to him daily. Martin Luther The German theologian once wrote that the whole of the Christian life. The whole of the Christian life is repentance. Repentance both starts and marks the Christian life. Now, when we as Christians come to repent before the Lord daily, which I hope and pray we are. We are not seeking daily justification. I need you to understand that you do not lose your salvation when you sin. When my wife and I, when I sin against my wife, her and I don't take our, our rings off and start from scratch. That's not how it works for this illustration. What we are seeking as Christians when we come back in repentance daily, we're seeking daily restoration when our personal relationship with God has been hindered by our sin. When we sin, when you and I sin, God forbid, later today, our relationship as Christians with God is affected, but it is not severed. Our sin needs to be addressed, but we are not seeking justification anew because, praise God, he remains faithful even in our unfaithfulness. As often as we ask him for daily bread, which... Should be every day. I don't know if you are trying to get into a pattern like my family and I are of after we've eaten a meal, we have someone else pray. God, please provide the next meal. As often as we do that, we ought to be asking God for the bread of life, for the forgiveness of Christ, to absorb our debt, to remove any and all offenses that might affect our relationship with God. And then, verse 13, we're to ask Him to help us to turn. To turn away. Lead us not into temptation. Not, not more into that direction. Deliver us from that evil. Turn us the other direction. Here, Jesus is, is, He's teaching His disciples and us that we can and we should preventatively ask God to spare us from situations that might entice us to sin. We can, we should ask God, spare me from any situations today, Lord, that might lead me to grieve you. We can and should ask that. Now, this much is certain from the book of James. God never tempts his people. He never does. He cannot tempt his people. It would go against his very nature. But he will allow and does allow Some instances where we will be tempted. Did he not allow Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness? Right after his baptism. God only temporarily allows us to be tempted in order that we might be strengthened in our endurance against sin. Strengthened in our affections for him. And when we should find ourselves being tempted, let's say today. Let's say you go home and no one else is at home, sir. When no one else is at home and you have internet access. And you know that everybody's going to be gone for the next couple of hours in that moment. Or later on as you're at the store. And you're filling your cart with all of these material things that you do not need and you cannot afford. Trying to cover the gamut of sin here. Later on today, when you're tempted to to speak about a brother or sister ill-favorably. All of these things, we can pray this prayer. We can stop and pray verse 13. Lead me not into temptation. Lead me no further into temptation, Lord. Deliver me from this. And then in that moment, sir, when your family is not home and you have internet access, you can remind yourself of God's precious promise to you in First 1 Corinthians 10.13 that God will not let you be tempted beyond what you are capable of withstanding by his power. And he will, every time, faithfully provide a way out of your temptation. And that way out of your temptation might just be right out the front door. Sometimes when we're being tempted, we just got to get away from the situation. Is anybody recalling uh, Joseph's story in Genesis with Potiphar's wife? What did he do? He just ran. He fled. I would love to see more dudes tempted with lust in my neighborhood just scramming right out the front door, walking around the neighborhood. How honorable would that be? I'm not even kidding. It's funny. We can laugh. But my gosh, how I want to roll with dudes like that. I'll look like an idiot. I'll go take a walk outside, right? Having a five-minute extra walk, you know, and sparing myself from... Sin and death. For the Christian, here's great news. There exists no sin over which we cannot prevail by God's faithful power. There does not exist a sin over which we cannot prevail in Christ. And so that leads me logically to... to, I want to say something. Ultimately, ultimately the reason... We fail time and time and time and time again with the same sins year after year is not because God has failed to supply us with power or provide us a way out. It's because we truly haven't sought his power or we don't really want a way out. Because we love our sin. I'm not saying That we will be completely and totally free, walking on the clouds above every temptation if we just seek his power and pray this prayer. But I am saying we won't be next year so mastered by our sin if we give ourselves to this prayer. And hallelujah for that. Romans 6, we are no longer slaves to sin. Jesus. Galatians 5, if you walk by the Spirit, brother, if you walk by the Spirit, sister, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Lord, let us be a church that prays this prayer. That we would not continue to be mastered by certain sins year after year. Give us belief that we can have victory our greatest need is to be brought back into relationship with god and therefore the most important thing we can do today is to seek his forgiveness through repentance i'm going i'm going i'm going to go a bit abbreviated here with the second point due to due to time point number two the greatest sign one of the greatest signs or the greatest sign I don't know I'm I'm feeling weird about that wording but here it is the greatest sign that we have received forgiveness is our willingness to extend forgiveness to others the echo of the of the first half of verse 12 is as we also have forgiven our debtors and Jesus elaborates On this in verses 14 and 15, he says for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, an entire series could be spent on the topic of forgiving others. An entire year, an entire decade could be spent like repentance on the topic of forgiving others. At first glance, it, it, it appears that Jesus has added a condition onto our salvation. It, may, it appears that we must not only repent of our sins, but we must also do something else in order to be forgiven and receive. But in reality, these seemingly separate actions are at their core the very same thing. C.S. Lewis helpfully explains, he says, forgiving... And being forgiven are two names for the same thing. The pinnacle important thing is that a discord has been resolved. The idea of the second half of verse 12, as you see in your word and in your Bible, the idea of that verse and, and then verses 14 and 15, the big idea here is that those who have truly repented and received forgiveness for their sins, ought to be so moved with gratitude toward God that they also eagerly forgive those who are debtors to them. And conversely, when we refuse to give someone forgiveness... When we refuse to forgive another person who's wronged us, it actually says more about our own misunderstanding of our own forgiveness than it does about our lack of forgiveness to them. And to illustrate this, in Matthew 18, Jesus gives this parable, this story to his disciples called the Unforgiving Servant. Remember, we we did a parable series not long ago. There's a servant who owed the king millions of dollars and he could not pay his debt. And so he pleaded on his knees to the king for forgiveness. He pleaded with the king to release him from his debt. And the king, in his great mercy, forgave him and released him. Later that day, this same servant who had just been forgiven of this incredible debt ran into another servant who owed him, not millions, 10000 about $10,000. And what does the first servant do? He seizes the man. He chokes him around his neck. He throws him into the prison while the man is screaming and pleading for his forgiveness. Jesus' point, his point in the parable, his point in verses 14 and 15, is that a heart that knows it has been forgiven much will gladly extend forgiveness to others. The first servant did not have a heart that truly acknowledged the issue of his sin, of his debt. He treated it as flippant. He was not repentant, truthfully. George Herbert says that he that cannot forgive others Breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass into heaven. For everyone has need to be forgiven. One writer says from verses 14 and 15. Church, we must be sobered to realize that no one is a true Christian, no one is born again and destined for heaven who is an ungrateful, unforgiving person. Jesus would say to that person, you cannot genuinely receive my forgiveness and still remain unforgiving. And so the challenge Of this passage, as believers here in Worcester, Ohio, who make up Substance Church, we must examine our hearts for species of unforgiveness, for signs of unforgiveness. Brother or sister, do you avoid a certain person like the plague because of a past hurt? Do you desire to see a certain person fail consistently? Are you... Do you have a disdain when this certain person succeeds? Are you constantly keeping score silently in your mind between you and this other person? These are, these are signs that we may be giving ourselves to unforgiveness. When you're listening to a sermon, maybe a podcast, do you ever think to yourself, Oh, he ought to hear this part. Signs of unforgiveness. What about a refusal when I'm talking to you right now and the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind someone, a refusal to sit down with that person who is coming to your mind right now. If your brother or sister has sinned against you, Jesus says in Matthew 18, go, go and point out their fault to them. It is a grace to them. And it may be a misunderstanding that will be a grace to you to have resolve. Sit down just between the two of you. Luke 17, if your brother repents, forgive them. Now this could open up a whole world of what if they're unrepentant? Suffice it to say this. Because there are theologically astute brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ who actually come to a bit of a disagreement on that. One says, why would God expect of us to do something that not only that he doesn't do himself, he doesn't forgive the unrepentant. Why are we to? And then there are other passages that just blanket, forgive your debtors. Doesn't caveat it to death. It says, forgive those who are indebted to you. And so suffice it to say this, Look at the amazing example that we have in uh, in Joseph in the book of Genesis. Beaten and sold into slavery by his brothers. Havoc was wreaked upon his life by his brothers. And he comes and he absorbs their debt and welcomes them in. Think about Stephen, who has just gotten done preaching to the council the good news, right? And they start stoning and they tear their robes. They stone him while he's being stoned to death. Without any repentance on their part, what does he cry out? Forgive them. Forgive them, Lord. And what about the pinnacle example of Jesus? Who on the cross, as he was being crucified, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I'm ending now. If you brothers and sisters like me struggle with unforgiveness. Fix your eyes on the fount of forgiveness himself. Look at your sins at the foot of his cross that have been covered in the mercy blood that has washed down. Look at the length that he went to absorb your debt even when you are not asking for it. For while we were all yet unrepentant sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray.